good things. Make them happen. Jesus, you've told us how to pray. And you taught us what to ask for. And you said that when we ask you for the things of your kingdom, mission-oriented things, that, and we do it in your name, that you will give them. So we expect water, not because we have power, but because you wired the universe to work on prayer. And when your people who are called by your name ask you for mission things, you give them. They need water. Give them water, please, Jesus. We're not demanding. We're asking. We're begging that you do it. That you'd give relationships, that you would multiply their people like the flocks at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. That the way cities will be filled and they will know that you are the Lord. We pray for sustaining and upkeep. We pray for health to flood in to get the mission done. We pray you'd meet the financial need. Make it happen, Jesus. All resources are yours. Nothing is lacking in the kingdoms. We pray you'd pull it off. And Lord, we look with eyes of faith to the realization of these good things so we can celebrate them, have a party over them, Jesus. We want to be happy people because you're a happy God who does good things for your people. And we receive all those good things by faith and ask you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 32, verse 1 to 21. We're continuing our study through Genesis and we're uh, in the place of Jacob's journey where he is continuing to grow in his knowledge of who the Lord is. And then his obedience to the practices of God's kingdom. So in Genesis chapter 32, beginning verse 1, I'll read verse 1 to 21. Uh, I'm going to do that fairly quickly. Uh, and, and then we're going to pop through, uh, introduce it a little bit, because there's some key things I want to say on the front end to help us get our bearings. And then we're going to make three observations, okay? Genesis 32, 1 to 21. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them... He said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. It means two camps. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and have stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of the, uh, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. That he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered from multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 Male donkeys, 
These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When he saw my brother meet you and ask you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Jacob is growing in his knowledge of God, and in obedience to the values of God's kingdom. As we study through Genesis, kind of put this in the proper framework so we interpret well. Remember, Moses is discipling his people as they are leaving Egypt and wandering in the wilderness and preparing to enter a land full of other gods, which are no gods. But other religious beliefs and another set of values and a whole different narrative, a whole different way of life. And Moses is discipling his people as they exit Egypt so that they are prepared as the people of God to live well and make disciples among the nations. Again, this goes all the way back to Abraham. As we read in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the first uh, installment of the Great Commission that Jesus is preaching from when he gives us Matthew twenty eight sixteen to 20. That all the nations are to believe and know. And they are to come into the knowledge of the Lord. And therefore to know God like that, the people of God preaching the message need to know the Lord. So Moses is discipling his people. He's letting them know who they are. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. I'm the Lord your God who led you out of the bondage of Egyptian slavery. He told them who they are before he gave them the law. They're God's people. They've been purchased by him for his purposes. He's discipling them about the story that they are a part of. The narrative that they are a part of. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, okay? I don't want to spend a ton of time here. But that can be a whole sermon in and of itself. One of the ways that you and I, as we engage our domain as professional missionaries on the field of our vocations, is we begin to speak about Jesus and live out the values of God's kingdom. And that is the chief way you have a missionary encounter with Western civilization. And you will not begin to see different narratives until you practice your values. One of the Proverbs tells us that it's better to have a little and peace than a lot with chaos. Those are two different narratives. And you don't feel them until you pursue a lot and have chaos in your life. And then that begins to butt up against simplify, simplify for peace. And your culture says more, more, more. And the stream of your culture says more, more, more. Get, get, get. And we want, want, want. But we read peace, peace, peace. 
Chill, chill, chill. And we're left in these conflicted states. That, that conflicted state is the conflict of two different narratives. One is the God of the Bible. One is demonic. Remember I told you last week there's no such thing as secular. It's either pagan or Christian. Because the whole idea of neutrality is false. If it's not Jesus, it's not Jesus. Which means it's demonic. There's no middle ground in the text. And so Moses is helping them to navigate these narratives. Is it Baal that helps you get your crops? Is it Asherah that gives you children? Or is it the Lord? And one of the great struggles they're going to have is, is taking a little Asherah and a little Baal and calling it Yahweh. You hear me say this a lot. They just take an idol and put a Christian t-shirt on it. And he's helping them to navigate this narrative. And the totality of your Bible helps you to know that narrative so that you can have a legitimate missionary encounter on the job with people and cultural issues in the workplace so that you can bring the gospel of the kingdom to bear. We feel this narrative conflict and such things as even Jenny was sharing with you where I worship the Lord and I obey the Lord at the potential cost of my life or I choose not to worship so we can play baseball on Sunday mornings. Those are two different narratives. One of them's Christian, one of them's not. We feel this need to continue to be discipled in the gospel of the kingdom as we conflict with these narratives. And Moses is helping his people see and know and recognize these things. I shared with the pastors this morning. I, I, I'm very much like Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. You ever notice Lucy is, is the one, and this is totally intentional by Lewis, that the one who sees Aslan the most is the littlest. Because that's how God works in his kingdom. It's the least, right? He works through the least, not the greatest. So it will be the littlest one that gets the most interaction with Aslan. But have you ever noticed along the way, Lucy doesn't see him all the time. She sees glimpses. And she turns to tell the others and turns around and he's gone. Right? That's how it is living in the kingdom. There are going to be moments where it's so clear. And you're going to look down, you're going to try to write about it, and life's going to hit you in the face, and you're going to look up and go, where did it go? And it's not clear anymore. And Moses is writing this down for his people so that they have a frame of reference to keep it clear. And when we lift our eyes off of it, and we get in the stream of a system and a narrative that's not the narrative of the kingdom of God, of Jesus Christ and His rule and His salvation, we get confused and things are not clear anymore and we don't know what to do. And Moses is alleviating that by sharing with them this story of who God is and what His intention is. He's helping disciple them on how to follow the Lord through recounting what the Psalms are going to call your testimonies. These are one of those testimonies. Of how Jacob knew the Lord and how he followed him. And what they were to do is just simply imitate that. And I would say we are too. And he's discipling his people on how God interacts with his people. How God reveals himself to them. And this pattern of how God reveals and their responsibility is to respond. You guys should notice that language. Because as we talk through worship 
here recently, we talk about even the movement of this worship service is built on the idea of God revealing himself and our response to him. That it's a constant dialogue. God speaks, we respond. To not respond to God is to be not Christian. Those who know Jesus hear him and obey him. He who hears these words of mine and does them. So as Moses is discipling his people, we are being discipled as we read his testimonies and we learn about what it is to know Jesus and to follow him in obedience. Well, in this passage, these 21 verses, what do we see? What does it mean? And what are we supposed to do with it? Three observations that really feel disconnected, but they're there in the text. And the truth of the matter is, verse 1 to 21 is really part of a larger section that really goes all the way through chapter 33. And next week we're going to get to deal with Jacob wrestling with God himself face to face. It was hard for me to like just stop at verse 21 because that's a rich passage. We'll do that next week. So these three points feel kind of disconnected, but in fact they're intimately interrelated. And I hope you'll see that here in just a minute. Observation number one, we see it in verse one and two, is that God's going to comfort Jacob By providing assurance of his presence. Remember Jacob is leaving. And he's leaving what he has known for this period of time. And he's gone out in uncertainty. Because what faces him is the prospects of having to obey the Lord and facing his brother. And so as he goes out, God is gracious to reveal himself by letting him know that God is not distant. But he is in fact present. How does he do that? He allows him to see the angelic hosts that serve God's purpose for God's people. So God comforts Jacob by allowing him to see the unseen. And being comforted in the fact that God is near. Now one of the things we run across as we study our Bibles. And I remember teaching systematic theology for so long. My student's favorite chapter in the, in the book we used was chapter 18, Angels and Demons. There's something about angels and demons that have a tendency in our mind to trump Jesus. I don't know what it is. We get to Jesus and everybody... <laughs> angels and demons? Oh, wow, amazing. I'm going... What? Jesus made them. He's more intriguing. right? And, and there is even a conflict of narratives right there. Why are angels and demons more interesting than Jesus? Isn't that crazy? It's wild. Without fail, chapter 18, who we going to get the angels and demons? I know all I need to know about Jesus. Let's get the demons. I'm like, oh my gosh. So the tendency here is to get hung up on the angelic. And we're not going to get hung up there because they're not the point. The centerpiece of this passage really is the prayer in verse 9 to 12. But God assures Jacob that he's near by allowing him to glimpse into this part of created order. Psalm 37 or 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The book of Hebrews tells us that these hosts are his servants for our sake. And so the truth of the matter is, Moses is reminding the people that God has gone before and it is in fact him at work through these hosts to provide what they need. Psalm 91, 11 and 12 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91 has been one of my greatest bombs when I have been in the pickle 
of some hard places around the world. He who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Boy, that's a good word when you feel like you're in the shadow of death. As a matter of fact, as we read these passages about the angelic host, just a little word of warning, don't read them and interpret them the way Satan does. I guarantee you Satan knows the Bible better than you or I. In fact, he quotes that Psalm 91 passage. Do you recognize that language? He quotes it to Jesus in his temptation. He doesn't misquote it. He quotes it exactly. The problem in Satan's use with that psalm is his application of it as if it had no qualifications. He quotes it the way a lot of us read our Bibles. As if there are no qualifications on it, like we didn't read the other passages. Like, it, like we use Philippians 4.13. I can dunk this ball, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Negative. No. That's, that's how Satan used Psalm 91.11-12. Like there are no qualifications on it. Like Jesus didn't have the cross coming. Like Job didn't have difficulty coming. And somehow God was absent from that. That if God failed to rescue, I guess God was absent. No, it was actually God guiding the process. Right? And so, as we read these passages about the host, we read them appropriately. Don't misuse them the way Satan did. But recognize that God was comforting Jacob and providing assurance that he was on his side and working on his behalf. Three of us church, as we continue to engage the world, as we have a team that just returned from a hard place and hard work. Know this, not only did Jesus go before, he sent the unseen hosts of heaven that are sent to serve on behalf of those who inherit eternal life. And he goes before through all of those hosts. Which is why Paul will say in Ephesians 3.10 that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being proclaimed to the principalities and powers and rulers in these heavenly places. There is an angelic supernatural effect going on. And by the way, what's happening here this morning is proclaiming that wisdom to those principalities and powers. This is not... A time that is just throwaway. The gathered community of the kingdom of God is a holy supernatural time in which there is proclamation happening that you aren't hearing. In the gathered people of God. And it's another reminder, as Lewis said, that we live in a supernatural world. There's more in play in this moment. There's more in play tomorrow. But God comforts us by letting us know that He rules that and He's doing it for our good. Second observation I want you to see here is that Jacob pursues reconciliation, not mere appeasement and avoidance. I asked these guys to put this up. I know you're not going to be able to see this. If we had our own place, right? If we had our own place, I would have this gigantic screen where I could put stuff up and even could write on it from like right here because the teacher in me wants to like scribble on that. And a, and a laser pointer, you can't see it on TV because I tried. But I want you to see something geographically that's very, very important here. You notice there are two lakes there. There's the top one, that's Lake Galilee, and then the bottom was, is, uh, is uh, the Dead Sea. Jacob is coming in and crossing the Jordan River, which is between... The lake on the top and the lake on the bottom. Esau is way, way down below that bottom lake. A long way away from where Jacob has to go. And the reason I want you to see that little map, if you can see it. And if you can't, I, don't worry. I'm sorry. I'm just 
trying to give you a visual. I wanted you to see the geographical distance between where Jacob sees these angels, which is that line where he's crossing. There's a little flag there. That's where this vision is at. And Esau is way down in Edom. Here's what I want you to see. Jacob never had to really see his brother again. There's a geographical distance that would prevent them from ever even having to see one another again. Esau is far to the south. And we read here in verse 3 that Jacob, encouraged by the fact that God is near and working on his behalf, sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother. He's not sneaking in the land. He's not trying to hide it. He sends messengers on ahead of him all the way down to where his brother's at to let him know he's coming. That's a quite different Jacob than the one who schemed him out of his birthright, isn't it? That's a different man. You want to know why it's a different man? Because he's met the Lord. (laughs) And he has been birthed into the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ. And he is about to get a new name in the last part of this chapter. And God's been at work in him. And he's been transforming him. And he's been changing him. And Jacob, rather than avoiding his brother... Rather than just simply trying to appease him, interacts with him by engaging first as the offending party with the one he offended. That he might know that things are right. I find this an interesting interchange here. And the reason I find it interesting is because it just seems out of place for Jacob. Sneaky. Right? His name even means grabs the heel. He's a sneaky cat. And here he is, not sneaking around, but sending an emissary to his brother, I'm back. Recognizing that that could go good or bad. In fact, you read on, when his messengers come back, he lets him know Esau and 400 men are coming with him. And he gets a little nervous. Because in fact... 400 to 600 people are considered a raiding party. And so it'd be one thing if he's sending a couple of dudes, but he's sending 400 and Jacob gets this feel. Oh man. Oh gosh, Lord, you, you, you said you're the one who told me to go. And here I am trying to do what's right. And he's coming after me. And so he sends all these presents before him. Here's what I want you to see in this passage. Jacob is pursuing reconciliation, not mere avoidance. And here's our little gospel pointer and gospel indicator in the text. As you read your Old Testament, remember this. Remember, we we studied through this. We try to teach you this. Disciple you how to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament preaches the gospel. But it's not the gospel of mere salvation, of justification. The gospel is multifaceted. The gospel is justification. The gospel contains the justifying work of Jesus Christ. But it also contains the truth of God's eschatological... Sorry, I'm about to use a big word. I apologize. God's end time rule that has come in the middle, right? That, that when Jesus ascends, right? When He rises and ascends and He sends the Holy Spirit, all the Old Testament prophets pointed to that time as the end of time. And we read in Acts that all these things have been fulfilled now in Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So the end has come right here in the middle. Which is why Jesus' parables start making sense. The end has come. You don't know when it's going to wrap up, so be on task. Don't be caught 
beating my servants and drinking my wine. And I show up and you're cast out. Be on task because the end has already come. And so we see glimpses of things like that also in the Old Testament. We don't just see God saves people. We see God transforms people too. And that's a gospel reality. Here's our little gospel indicator. And this indicator is that God has so transformed Jacob that rather than avoiding his brother, he's seeking to meet him face to face. In fact, if you go to verse 20, he says to these parties he's sending on ahead. He says, I want you to say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought I may appease him with the present that goes on ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. That's significant. That's Hebrew for we will be face to face with one another. It's not mere appeasement. It is that we might be once again face to face, eye to eye, not at war. And the presence he's sending isn't mere appeasement. It's to pay restitution for what he stole from his brother. In other words, the offending party is making sure he's making it right. Let me ask you a question. Can anybody think of anything the Lord Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew about this issue? And can you think of an instance maybe where the Lord Jesus is preaching from? Because remember, Jesus isn't making stuff up on the fly in the Gospels. He's preaching from the book. You might think of an example where Jesus might be bringing this from. I got one. It's Genesis chapter 32, verse 1 to 21. What did Jesus teach on this issue? Let me read it for you. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh oh. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, you're the offending party, you've been wrong, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. This is Jesus in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, teaching what the kingdom of God looks like. And it looks like people who recognize their fault and make it right with the person that they did wrong. And guess what old transform Jacob is doing? <laughs> I stole this from you, and the very least I can do is put myself out there to either be killed by you or to give back to you a tiny portion of what I stole from you. And maybe Esau, we can be face to face again. <laughs> Jacob's a new man. <laughs> He's not content to dwell in a narrative that avoids paying for what he did. He's willing to embrace the consequences of his actions. That's because he is a new creation. Three of church, there's no room for us to offend and to be wrong toward and then come in here and worship like it's okay. That's not what the kingdom is about. That's not how the kingdom works. That's a different narrative. That's a different team. That's a different story. That's the story of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in life. These are not from the Lord Jesus. They are from the world. All right? And so, old Jacob is growing in grace, and he's turning into a man of God. And it's evidenced in his decision-making. And the third and final observation is Jacob now calls on the Lord for help to make things right. 
Jacob has already sent an emissary. And he's now worried because there's 400 cats coming his way. What does he do? Raise an army? No. No. Remember our passage last week for graduation Sunday? Students, you remember that? Luke 10. How did Jesus say to get the work done? Ask the Lord of the harvest. What's Jacob doing right here? Is he delivering himself? No. He goes to prayer. (laughs) And he says, Lord, there is absolutely no way I can do this. So Jacob's growing in grace and he recognizes that his strength is from the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, right? So Jacob learns here to call on the Lord for help in making things right. Keep in mind, this isn't so much a model prayer. Jesus gave us that in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. As much as it is an example that God's people are to call on Him. (laughs) That there is this open invitation in Christ to come boldly to the throne of grace and there receive mercy and grace to help in a time of need. Right? And so, how does Jacob do that as a transformed child of God? Well, he just calls on Him. There's some components here I want to run over with you in the last few minutes we have together. I want you to notice in verse 9 that Jacob recalls back to God... What God had called Jacob to do. Notice verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. You remember all the way back in chapter 31, he refused to call on the God of his grandfathers because he wasn't certain it was the same God. He's growing in nuance in his theology. So he swore by his the God of his father Isaac, which is the Lord. So he's growing in his doctrinal understanding. And he's growing in his understanding and how to pray. So once again, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. O Lord who said to me, Yahweh who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. He's recalling back to God the call. In other words, Jacob is saying, you told me to do this. Listen, Three Rivers Church, it is not inappropriate to say back to God in prayer as a reminder, not that He needs reminding because He knows all things, but as an act of interaction with the Lord. Lord, you're the one who told me to do this. What we fail to recognize is prayer isn't a mechanism. It's not a mechanic thing in which we go toss our stuff up to the Lord. It is a dialogue between you and Jesus Christ. Through the Holy Spirit to God the Father. It's an intimate, relational act by which we have conversation. And it is not wrong to say, Lord, you are the one who said this. Jacob just simply, Lord, you're the one who told me to go do this. Say it another way. Lord, I'm in pickle. But you put me in this pickle. I'm simply doing what you said. He who hears these words of mine and does them is wise. Why? Because they built their house on the rock. Oh, Jacob had built his house on the rock here and the Lord's not going to let him down. He let him glimpse into this supernatural world and let him know, hey, I have gone before you. You obey me and I got this. And Jacob is simply recounting, Lord, this is what you said to do. I'm obeying your word. 
It's also important to note here that Jacob isn't simply praying for help to not merely, or, or let, me, let me actually read what I wrote because I just totally butchered it. It's also important to note that Jacob is praying for help not merely to be delivered, but believing that reconciliation is part of God sending him back. Otherwise, there's no need to seek an encounter with Saul. He's praying for the Lord to bring reconciliation. Even notice what he says here in verse 9. It's you, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred. Took that to mean I got to go see Esau. But Jacob's just obeying. And he looks to the Lord and says, Lord, you're the one who said to do this. It is not wrong, dear believer. As you read your Bible and it makes bold, bold statements to you about what to do. To just go do it. And when it gets hard, say, Lord, you said, you said, I'm just, I'm just doing what you said. That's good practice. Do that. Okay? Do that. Secondly, I want you to note that Jacob is humble. Verse 10. Jacob's not demanding. He's recalling back to God what, his, what he had said. And he approaches humbly. He said, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love. That you have shown to your servant. For with my own, only with my staff I crossed this Jordan. And now I've become two camps. Jacob recognizes where it all came from. I crossed here with my stick. And now I'm coming back with all this stuff. So he's humbly coming to the Lord. Recognizing the source. Third. Verse 11. The first part. Jacob petitions God for what he needs. Notice the first part of verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from, uh, and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. He just gets to the point, Lord, deliver me. He's got 400 dudes. I got some wives and animals and children. Help. Water. Friends. Strength. You think the Lord's going to withhold that? If you think God would withhold that, you don't know Him. Right? He petitions Him for what He needs. He boldly asks for good. How did the Lord teach us to do that? Which of you, being a son, ask His Father for fish and bread? You think He's going to give you a snake and rocks? No. How much more your Father in Heaven will give you all these good things when you ask them for them in his name. He comes boldly and he asks for what he needs. He asks for protection. He asks for reconciliation. I'm going to give you a little hint. God's going to give him both. He's going to give him both. Hebrews 4.16 said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Confidence. I think sometimes we don't pray confidently. We pray in doubt. Can I just be honest for a second? A lot of us in our Baptist reformedy kind of whatever we are we're so scientifically driven that we can't imagine a supernatural God and we feel like we got to prove stuff and we need scientific data I just I just want you to know something we don't have to prove anything our apologetic needs to be nothing proving anything to anybody and we pray like that often like somehow we come to God in doubt that Lord I I just I don't know, I don't know that that's possible. And, and, and we might not say that, but that's the attitude. We come with, Lord, Lord, I don't know. 
They need to live, but just in case they die, help them be okay. Like we pray in doubt, not in faith, right? We pray in case they die, right? Rather than, Lord, let them live. And stop in there. I believe you can give life. And I confess that to you and believe that. And until you do different, I'm asking for life. That's how we pray in faith. Does that make sense? But we got this weird thing going on that we, we're, we're so stoic or whatever. And, and I don't even know what you call it. I think it's just praying in doubt. We just want to cover our bases. Because we don't want to make God look like something he's not. So we're afraid if we pray for life and he doesn't let life come, then we think somehow he looks bad. And that's just doubt. Man, pray in faith, believing that he is able. And if he doesn't do that, then receive it and say thank you. That's how Jesus taught us to pray in faith. Does that make sense? This isn't some weird word of faith nonsense. That's a lie. That's a different team. I'm talking about simply praying as Jesus taught us to, believing. Jesus taught his disciples, if you ask in faith, you can say to that mountain, get up and go when it has to obey. I don't know about you, but I don't care what denomination we are. I want that reality. We need that where we work in the world. We need that in our city. We don't need doubt. Lord, I'm not sure if you can do this. So just in case you don't, would you do these things? No, Lord, we expect you to give us Rome because you've given us the world. Does that make sense? Let's pray like that. Let's expect them to have water this week. I don't know about you. If you don't have water this week, y'all freaking out. You're taking out a mortgage to buy Walmart's water supply. Right? You'd be crazy enough to go drink the water out of the Coosa if you had to. Right? Let's expect God to give them water. Nothing less. Lord, you said, if we ask you, you'll give it. That's basic necessity. Please give them water. Right? He petitions him for what he needs. Lord, I need to be face to face with my brother. Because this thing I did to him is wrong. And I need you to keep me alive. And it wasn't wrong for him to ask for that. Right? A, B, C, D. D is four. Okay, I, I, I lettered these. And I'm like, D is the fourth letter in the alphabet. Sorry, I had this moment of blank. Where I was like, what number is that? It's D. D's four. It's D, four, A, A B, C, D, S, four. Thank you. <laughs> I'm smarter than that, I promise. I'm just, maybe I'm not. Jacob expresses his fear. I think this is important. This is a discipleship lesson for us. Notice the second part of verse 11. He asked the Lord to rescue him from the hand of his brother, from the hand of Esau. Why? Purpose clause, for I fear him. Listen to this. Jacob expresses his fear, and that isn't sin. We've been taught a lie. It's a different team. It's a different narrative. Right? We've, taught, we've been taught that fear is the opposite of faith. Can I just say to you that's untrue? There's nothing true in that statement. If so, Jacob sinned right here. Didn't he? Fear isn't evil. And it's not the opposite of faith. There is a fear that will save your life. Right? 
you climb up a tree. Now, I did this when I was little. I watched First Blood. Who's seen First Blood? Some of y'all need to get cultured. Go to the Netflix and watch First Blood. Come on, man. It's the first Rambo. Who's seen Rambo? Go watch First Blood. Come on, y'all. Y'all got an assignment. Go watch First Blood. You remember, you remember, you remember when he's climbing this rock face and he jumps into the pine trees? You remember that? <laughs> well, this boy thought it'd be really cool to climb to the top of this huge water oak tree and think, I can catch myself on the way down. So I got as far as I could get to the top of that tree and I laid back. And I started grabbing limbs and stuff was just blurring by. <laughs> And I couldn't see what to grab. I hit every limb on the way down. Broke my ankle. Hurt myself. Fear would have saved me from that folly. And that would not have been sin. It would have been wisdom. Right? There is a fear to save your life. Right? The Bible tells us to fear the Lord. There's a sense of coming to the Lord in which we don't hop up in there. Hey, hey what's up? But there's a sense in which we come boldly. We're told to come boldly. But we don't come with an irreverence. And, and that's a biblical command. To come before the Lord in reverence and awe. There's a, there's a, he's a consuming fire. But we're welcome to come. And that tension. We need to live in that tension. That's okay. It's an okay place to live. So when God calls you to hard things. It's not wrong to be afraid. And it's not a lack of faith. Does that make sense? So don't buy that lie. It's a different team. That's a different narrative. It's a lie. If you're not, listen, if you're not afraid to some degree, you might not be obeying. Obedience will tax you. It's hard. It's challenging. And dear, dear Three Rivers member, don't. Be afraid to admit you're afraid. Tell the Lord. Because He's got those cab moments on the street for you. And it's those moments where you realize, well, by cracky, this is going to be okay. And even if I do go, I went out on a high note. That's not, that's a good way to go. That's a better way to go than hiding somewhere, right? That's a win-win. Jacob expresses his fear because that's what Christians do. And finally, I'm out of time, but I just hit this. Verse 12, Jacob recounts back to God what God promised. He said here in verse 12, You said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob just recalls the word of God. God said this to him. He recalls it. Listen, know enough scripture that when you're in the soup and in the fear, you can say, Lord, you said... You said, Lord, your word says this. And you bring that back to the Lord and that's worship at its finest. That's worship at its best. And life lived like that, you can come into this place and we sing our songs. There is a megaphone screaming the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's a world that sees these cats believe this stuff. They're living in a story I want to be part of. And that's open door for evangelism. So that when you start talking the trash, your life backs it up. It's people crazy. They, they do crazy stuff. 
And they're telling me how to get in on it. Listen, that's the way you want to live. Jacob's growing in the Lord. And we have an example. We can walk out of here and say, I can be like that. Because you be like that, you're being like Jesus. Because it's Jesus who's showing Jacob how to be like this. Let's pray and then we're going to worship together. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask for your help to uh, worship you well, to worship you right. This morning, we pray that you would cause your word to be a lamp for our feet and light for our path. And help us to hide your word deep in our heart that we might not sin against you. But that at the appropriate time and moment, Holy Spirit, you would recall it to mind so that we could, in prayer and relationship to you, say, Lord, that you said. So would you please help me because I'm afraid. Lord, would you do that for all of us in this moment? Lord, use this time of worship to minister to us by the Holy Spirit to meet what is needed in each of us as individuals. But also we pray that you would do that among us as a, as a, a fellowship. That you would meet the needs of the fellowship. That you would cause every person to contribute to the goal of growing up into Christ. May you fix what's broken, heal what's hurt, speak words of command, give hearts of obedience. And as we sing, we pray that all this symphony of good things would be glorifying to you and encouraging for us. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.